Well, all right, <clears throat> we're back in Revelation. Uh, we took a break and went through Ecclesiastes. I really enjoyed that series. We're back in Revelation, and we'll be here uh, basically until Advent. And so uh, as we get into this sermon this morning, I just want to acknowledge that uh, we've already been in here for about 56 minutes, and so we're starting a little bit late on the sermon. There's a bit of a danger in that, that you might uh, be looking at your watch and you might be wondering uh, when this sermon is going to end. I just really want you, I want to encourage you uh, today, this is a really important text. It's a really important moment in Revelation. It's important because it helps set our focus not just for the book of Revelation, but for our lives. And so as we get started, I want to ask you a question. When you look out from the place where you find yourself today, where do you look to determine what is real? When you look out and you, you kind of have a vision out into the world, where do you seek to, to find your focus in life? Maybe you look to social media, you look to TikTok or Instagram, and, and you've got a social media feed that you're kind of trying to, to assess what is real, what is really happening in the world right now. Or maybe it's your friend group, or maybe it's a friend group you wish that you were in, but you're not quite in yet, and you're kind of intuiting what is cool, and how can I be accepted, and how can I be a part of that friend group, or how can my friends accept me even more uh, maybe you look out into the, uh, the news, and you know, you know, there's a guy, some of you on the front row, I'm sure you've never heard of Walter Cronkite, but he was famous even before my time for saying in the middle of an interview, if someone got into an opinion, he would say, just the facts, ma'am, or just the facts, sir. Well, we don't have news like that anymore. I mean, it's all filled with opinion. In fact, if you're just giving the facts, it's not going to sell, and so we're constantly having to figure out how do we even find out what is real and what is true, but you incorporate media into that, you incorporate the news into that to try to determine what is real. And then maybe you look to your family, you look to your parents, maybe you look to your children, you look to your spouse, and you look around you, and that's a good place to look generally speaking, but not an ultimate place to find out what is really true, what can I believe, what is really real in this world. To make it even more difficult, most of us have some sort of an assimilation of all of those things that we're looking to, and maybe even more. Maybe it's your boss, how he or she feels about you. Maybe it's your coworkers. There's all kinds of places that we can look, to look out and go, what is real? What is true? Where do I find myself in this world? Tim Keller um, he wrote a book called, originally, The King's Cross. Uh, it's been recast uh, as Jesus the King. The women are studying this in one of their studies of the Gospel of Mark. In his introduction, he tells a really interesting story of a man who set out in his 20s to define truth for himself. Now, he really wanted to be unbiased and to find out amongst all of the things that had been written, all the things that were being said in his 20s, he was going to take a decade he was going to have a journal, and he was going to write down all of the quotes that resonated with him, and he was going to go back at the end of the decade, and when he's 30, and he's going to go back and look and define truth for himself. And so he began to do this, you know, 21, 22, writing down quotes all the way through. He read widely. He read broadly. He read generously. Let's not be too focused on one worldview. 
So he was very excited as he was 29, approached 30. Finally, he opened his journal, and the goal was to go back through and to find the, the, the stream of how all of these, these things fit together for himself so that he could define truth for himself. But as he began to start on the early pages and the things he wrote down, he was 20, 21, 22, he became very disappointed, very disillusioned with the quotes he had written down. He could remember why he wrote down the particular quote that he did, and it was meaningful at the time, but it really wasn't that meaningful anymore, and he kept on going 22, 23. The same thing kept happening, and he, in frustration, sat down his journal and realized he had failed. He could not define truth for himself. He was just as disillusioned and disappointed as he was when he was 20, maybe even more so. And so eventually he picked up a Bible, and he began to read it, and he began to understand that he needed someone who would see him and speak to him. He needed to have truth revealed to him. He couldn't reveal truth to himself. And that's what God is doing for us in the book of Revelation. That's what he's doing in Revelation 4, is he's giving John, the apostle John, who had been banished, if you'll remember, Uh, He's been banished to the Isle of Patmos. This is about A.D. 90. He's old. He's the last living apostle. All the other apostles have been martyred. He's the only one left. He's been banished to the Isle of Patmos. And everyone that everyone, everything that everyone is talking about is Rome, the Roman Empire. It's at its apex. It's at its zenith. He, of all people, is supposed to be an example of, of the power of Rome to define truth for itself. But on this island, to an aging man, God gives a vision of himself seated on a throne. And you can't mistake the context. God is saying, you think, everyone thinks that Rome defines what is real and what is true, but it's not true. I define it. I am what is real. I am what is true. I'm going to give you a vision of what ultimately will be true in the end that's truer than anything you could define for yourself. This subsection of Revelation, chapters 4 through 7, I'm calling Our God Reigns because what we have in these subsequent chapters is this picture of God on the throne and how he is worshipped. You might be surprised to hear that I have four points this morning instead of three. It'll be slightly shorter each one, I promise. But uh, first of all, it's a summons to see. A summons to see. Second, the one who is seated on the throne. Third, the ones who are gathered around him. And then finally, the praise of a redeemed creation. So first of all, the summons to see in verses 1 and 2. So John looks out and he sees one who is standing a door that is standing open in heaven. Heaven is being opened for him so he can take a look. Fifty times heaven is mentioned in the New Testament. The vast majority of those times are in Revelation. And the voice that is speaking to him in verse 1 is the same voice that was speaking to him in chapter 1. This is the voice of Jesus. And John said it sounded like a trumpet that was piercing through the air. Jesus says, come up here. 
and I will show you what will take place after this. And so John is given a vision of the future. Verse 2, he says that once I was in the Spirit, so the Spirit is the one showing him this vision of the one who is seated on the throne. This word throne occurs 19 times in chapters 4 and 5. And it occurs over 40 times in Revelation. This idea of a throne, of an enthroned king, is, is epic, especially in these two chapters. So I want to put it again in this context of Rome. There's a reason for this. Yes, God is really seated on a throne. He really is. But it's also a picture to undo this understanding that Rome actually is that great. That Rome is actually that transcendent. Rome was saying, that the, the, the emperor was saying, I will last forever. He was called my Lord and my God in different contexts. He was greeted when he came into in triumphal procession. He would be greeted with the cries from the people, you are worthy, emperor. Domitian, who was an emperor during that time, actually instituted the words, my Lord and God, into, into the, the way that he was greeted when he came into an area. And so God is saying it's all untrue. Who is seated on the throne? God is saying that I am. I want you to note here in this entire chapter that humanity is in the periphery. We are there. We are there through John. We are there because we know from later chapters that, that humanity, redeemed humanity, is there. But we are in the periphery. We are not in the center. We are far from the center of the picture of what is happening in Revelation 4. We are being told that we are not at the center of our own world. God is. God is sitting on the throne that is in the center of the world. We're not even the center of our own existence. This may be a difficult thought for you, but God is the center of your own personal existence. So you could say very truly that Corey is not the center of Corey's existence. Claire is not the center of Claire's existence. Marina is not the center of Marina's existence. The center of our existence, the center of our own lives, is God. This is important because one theologian put it this way. In much contemporary theology today, the note of God's grandeur, greatness, and glory that so fills the Bible is noticeably missing. He goes on to talk about how when we talk about theology, we usually talk about theology from the standpoint of ourselves, how God responds to us. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having theology that asks questions of God about ourselves. But that's not how the Bible is primarily written for us to understand. The Bible is a story about a God who is, who is seated on a throne. John Calvin said that it is God who has business with us, not the other way around. And that's a bit jarring for us in a world where most theology we read is generated from a standpoint of what does God say about money? What does God say about marriage? What does God say about emotions? What does God say about psychology? What does God say about parenting? What does God say about this and that? And again, nothing wrong with that, 
But if your entire perspective of who God is starts with the questions that you're asking of God, rather than the questions that God is asking of you, then you're going to get askew in your perspective about who is actually in the center of this world in which we live. And that is God. That is God himself. himself. It is God who is God, and we are not. We are not. So God summons us. And then second of all, there is one who is seated on the throne. Verses 2 through 6. Now, what kind of a God do we find seated on the throne? Well, you can tell that John is having a bit of a difficult time describing this God who is seated on the throne. He tells us more about what he's like than exactly what he is. The reason for this is 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us that God dwells in inapproachable light. No one has seen or can see him. So John has a very difficult task. He's trying to tell us about the one who's seated on the throne, but he can't really see him very well because God dwells in inapproachable light, and yet we have these pictures that John gives to us. And so he starts to describe what he sees. He says there's one who sat there who had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Now, I don't know anything about these stones. I had to look it up myself. Gordon Fee writes... In Exodus 28, 17 through 20, these are the first and last of the 12 stones mentioned in the description of the breastplate of the high priest, and both of them are red. So jasper may represent holiness and purity, the inapproachability of God, and then carnelian, the last, is the stone that represents wrath, that represents judgment, And so you have the first and the last stone. You have God as the Alpha and the Omega. And you have these stones that are there representing the holiness and the eternality of God. The rainbow over the throne is a reflection back to Noah's rainbow in Genesis 9. Unfortunately, we see the rainbow used. It's been co-opted in different ways in our culture. But the rainbow is God's sign. It's originally a sign of God's covenant faithfulness to anyone who will repent of their sin, that God will not flood the earth again because of sin, but God is exceedingly generous and gracious towards anyone who will come to him and repent of their sin. And so you have the rainbow like an emerald over the throne. Verse 5 tells us that there are flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder. One person said, that God cannot help but have this natural phenomena happening around him because he's fizzing with power. He simply has power, and it shows. The seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, we saw this in chapter 1, something very similar. There are not seven Holy Spirits, but this is a picture of the perfect wholeness of the Holy Spirit testifying to us that this is the one who is seated on the throne. We need to understand the picture that we're given here is one also, the final description, before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. This is important because the ocean or the sea in the Bible or in real life is a place of chaos. It's a place that is highly difficult for us to control with all of our technology. And yet before the throne of God, before the power of God, this sea is like crystal. 
It is smooth as glass. So we find the picture of the one on the throne. He's not nervous. He's not up pulling an all-nighter. He's not up taking survey monkeys of what everyone thinks he should do and then acting on it. He simply is. He's not aloof from the world. He loves the world. He loves you and me. But his understanding of what he's going to do and who he's going to be is not generated from your opinions of him. He is not worried. He is going to execute his plan for you, and that is for your good, and it is for my good. So what we see, what we, what we gaze upon, what we fix our hearts on matters immensely. It matters immensely. It's never been more challenging, I think it's a true statement, in the history of the world than it is today to focus your heart and your mind and your attention on the one who is seated on the throne. Never have there been more distractions than there are today. You have something in your pocket, if you have a phone, that connects you to everything immediately. And yet God is, he has not changed, he is seated on the throne. Where you find your gaze and your attention, it matters immensely to you. I was out uh, the other night out at Lake Crabtree running, and I, I started my run, you know, as I often do, anxious about something that's going on in my life or in the world, and I run, and it, it, it makes me feel a little bit better <laughs> when I'm done. Well, I finished my run, and I was walking out at Lake Crabtree right at sunset, just an unbelievably beautiful North Carolina sunset, and it was reflecting off of the lake with these purples and these pinks and these blues that was just dramatic. It was kind of surprising. I've been to Lake Crabtree a million times. Um, and as I'm looking at this reflection on the water, a, a flock of birds in V formation picks up from the bank where I'm looking and begins to fly out slowly across the water in perfect symmetry, beating their wings slightly on the water all the way across Lake Crabtree. And so how did that make me feel? I was like, wow, whatever I was thinking about, I was like, that is beautiful. And I immediately felt grateful. And I felt smaller. And I felt like, oh my goodness, I'm not thinking about sunsets and birds and lakes. I'm thinking about whatever this thing is I'm thinking about. It made me, it gained a new perspective for me of who God is and how he rules over creation. Now, I've got to say, that's not the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. It's the most recent beautiful thing that I've seen. But that is one billionth as beautiful, not even a billionth as beautiful, as God seated on the throne. And so if we can gain a glimpse of who he is and what he's about, it will change us. It will change us in times where you're having minor anxiety, like I was last Tuesday night when I was running. And it can change you in times of major suffering. Corey Tinboom, a Dutch woman who famously hid Jews in her home and for her crime, so-called against the Third Reich, was thrown into Ravensbrück, a Nazi concentration camp, said, there is no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. Here she is facing the very high probability 
that she would be killed in this camp. Her own sister died in the camp, and yet she, in her suffering, because of her view and her vision of the one who was seated on the throne, it changes her. It changed her entire perspective. God's glory and his goodness it was greater than any of the hatred of the Nazis, and so she could live with this vision of God that changed the way that she lived in the concentration camp, and it can change us too. Now, this is difficult for us. I've got to admit, as I've been preparing this sermon, I feel like sometimes I'm like a, a person. I've been in a, a dark room for hours, and someone throws on the lights. It hurts a little bit. It hurts our eyes and our hearts a little bit to gain this vision of a God who is seated on his throne, who loves us, but who is. He exists apart from us. He is, and he is reigning and ruling on his throne. And because of who God is, we have no reason not to trust him. But it does hurt our eyes. It burns a little bit when Jesus says, come up here and see the one who is seated on the throne. And third, we see the ones who are gathered around him in verses 4 through 8. First, I want to remind you that it's implied that ultimately the church is here. But we're not right next to the throne. We're out on the periphery. The way this chapter is set up, this vision is set up, is in this series of concentric circles. And we are on the outside circle. So yes, God sees us and he cares about us, but he sees us through these other concentric circles that are going on in between us and God. And there are these worshipers who bring God day and night praise to him. They bring it to him who is seated on the throne. First of all, we, we find the 24 elders. The 24 elders are the ones who are immediately around the throne. There, there have 24 thrones. There are these 24 elders seated on the thrones. Now, who are these 24 elders? There are two main interpretations. Uh, I'm going to give you the one I think is least likely first, and then I'll tell you the one I think is most likely. But, you know, a lot of things in Revelation I'm going to do this with because there are very respectable people who disagree with me about some of the imagery, okay? But I think that there are two main interpretations. The first interpretation is the 24 elders are angels who represent the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the angels who represent the apostles in the New Testament. And so there are angels who represent these, these elders, or they are elders, but they represent these heads of the tribes and the apostles. So G.K. Beale, who I have tremendous respect for, believes this is the best interpretation. But I think that I disagree with Beale, as hard as that is to do, um, for several reasons. One is angels are never referred to as elders anywhere in the Bible. They're never referred to as elders. Only redeemed humans can be elders. Angels are never seated on thrones in the Bible, but humans are seated on thrones. The redeemed are the ones who are clothed in white, not angels. Angels are never pictured as being clothed in white because they don't need to be redeemed. And the redeemed are the ones who are crowned with crowns that we then cast down our golden crowns around the glassy sea, which we find in verse 10. And so though I respect the other view, I think the better view is to actually believe that these 24 elders are the heads of the tribes of Israel, representing the Old Testament, 
and the apostles in the New Testament representing the New Testament. So you have all of salvation history and the leaders of salvation history who are redeemed, who are the 24 elders, who are leading us in worship. I would say more scholars agree with that interpretation than the former, and I think it's a better way to think about it. And then you have the four living creatures. Now, we don't get, need to get too literal here in our reading here, uh, what's exactly going on with the choice of these animals, uh, but we can learn a few things from the description of these creatures. First of all, the diversity of the creatures represents the diversity of God's creation. And so we need to picture them, not just themselves, but representing all of creation. They have eyes all over them, representing the extent to which they can see and understand who God is, and they can see and understand what creation is like, and so they can bring God worship. They have six wings, which is like a picture of Isaiah 6 with the cherubim, the six wings, with two of the wings they cover their face, with two of the wings they cover their feet, and with two of their wings, they fly, and they fly before God. And cherubim were known for, for enthroning God in worship. And these four animals were chosen for a reason, but more important than the different types of animals is this. They are kind of seen as being leading and most powerful animals in their subgroup. And these animals that represent all of the creation are bowing before the Lord God Almighty. They represent a redeemed creation bowing before the Lord. The one, they are worshiping the one who is on the throne. So I think this is a bit of an odd thing for us to think about, but this helped me that great kingdoms throughout world history and even current world powers use strong animals, sometimes even these animals, to represent themselves as being powerful. For example, the British use the lion, the Americans the eagle, the Chinese use a dragon. These are symbols of their power. A strong economy is called a bull market. The face of a man represents sometimes the enlightenment. And yet all of these creatures, what's the point? Is that all of them, all of redeemed creation, bows before the one who is on the throne. Those creatures may be used by kingdoms of this world to picture how powerful they are, but in God's kingdom, these animals that represent imperial power all bow before the great power, before the one who is seated on the throne. This is also important because later in the book, there will come another great beast who with all of his force will not bow before the throne of God. He will represent all those in creation who will not bow the knee who will not worship the lamb, worship before the throne. And God will have to deal with him differently. But the big takeaway here is this. The churches that we've just, we, we talked about before uh, we were in Ecclesiastes, the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 are having a hard time. They're suffering. They're doing some things well. They're doing a lot of things not well. And in the midst of that, it's very easy to adopt when you're suffering or you're not doing very well, to adapt your theology to yourself, to become very self-focused and self-referential in the way that you view God. But what God is calling us to do here is in our place of suffering and in our place of having real needs, to instead look out to the one who is seated on the throne, to find a different vision of what is ultimately true and real. 
instead of in suffering, shaking our fist at God and demanding that he serve us, instead of facing problems that we do face in life and demanding God would answer them in the ways that we believe he needs to answer them, we find here a picture of humility before the throne. The picture of the 24 elders and these four creatures is one of humility before God. He is God and we are not him. Can we find our center point there? And so from this place of humility and worship, we find the final point. It's the praise of a redeemed creation. There's at least five things we can observe in the praise that is happening in verses 8 through 11. The first thing we see is they praise God constantly. They never cease praising God day and night. Now, that doesn't mean it's not even possible because you need to sleep and you have some other things to do that you need to praise God literally, like by singing praise songs all the time. But it's an attitude of the heart. It's a way that we approach God. We can praise God continually. We can live our lives self-consciously before the Lord and seek to please him. And they praise God for his character. They praise God for his character. All of our songs this morning, or many of them, focus on the holiness of God. The holiness of God. As Joe said, he is three times holy, 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 holy. It's the only attribute of God that is listed three times in sequence in the Bible, and it happens multiple times. Isaiah 6, and here in Revelation, other places, God is saying, of all the things that I am, of all of the things that are true about me, please know and understand one thing, at least, and that is that I am holy. I am separate. I am different. I'm pure. I am other than you. I am set apart. I am unblemished. I am perfect. And they, they also praise God for his eternality. It says that he was, is, and is to come. That was the focus of chapter 1. What's so cool about being eternal? Well, everything is cool about being eternal. That's what everybody wants to be. They want to somehow beat death. They don't want their life to break down. They don't want their bodies to break down. And yet, for God, he never breaks down. He is the eternal God. And so they praise him for his character, his holiness, and his eternality. They also praise God with a compelling unity. This is amazing how it looks like to me that the four creatures sing their song, and then it moves the 24 elders to sing their song, and then they just go back and forth like a wave around a stadium that they're, they're feeding off each other. Who went first and who went second doesn't really matter, but they need each other, and it's in that community of worship that they find themselves praising God, and we learn that we need each other. There are so many Sundays when I come in and I'm, I'm distracted or frustrated about something, and by the time I get up here, because I've been able to worship for a little while, I'm in the right place. We need to be able to worship to gain our perspective. And I need unity with all of you, and you need unity with me to do that. Fourth, they praise God not just with words, but with emotion and action. This is a, a, a group that is moved in every part of who they are, not just cognitively, but physically and emotionally, they are bowing down before the throne. They are raising their hands. They are casting their crowns. They are involved with everything that they are. When is the last time you prayed with emotion? You got down on your knees or on your face or, 
or you just let it go and scream something or whatever you needed to do, and it wasn't this put-together, distracted moment. And when's the last time you served or gave something, not because you planned to do it and it's part of your automated giving patterns or your monthly rhythm of service or whatever, which is great and we need those rhythms, but when's the last time you did something because you were so moved by who God is that you were just like, I've got to do that. I've got to do that because of who God is. And they praise God in a way that subverts other gods. They praise God in a way that subverts other gods, other idols. I mentioned earlier that it had become part of the triumphal procession to say when the king came in, you are worthy, Domitian. You are worthy. And to call him Lord and God. And so how, how did it feel for the Christians in this time to receive the revelation from John where God is saying, no, 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 that's me. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive blessing and honor and glory and power. You are worthy, O Lord. You are the Lord, not the Roman emperor. God is directly speaking into their cultural idolatry. I believe absolutely these are words that will be sung in heaven, but they're words that are sung for these people in this time because God was saying, I am the Lord, not Domitian, not the Roman Empire. I am the Lord. And when we worship God, when we worship him from our souls, it will subvert our idols. I shared this story about a year ago when I first heard about I love it so much. I coach other pastors. I, I coach five other men right now who are pastors or church planners in either China or the United States. One of the guys I coach in China, uh, because of some things that were happening with COVID and with security issues, their congregation had to split from one congregation to six like really fast, like in about a month. And so in order to, to accomplish that, they needed to find fi five other worship locations. So they started asking around, and one lady raised her hand and said, I would love to worship. I would love for you to worship in my home. She was a wealthy lady. She had just become a Christian, and she lived by the sea. And so she said, I need you to come help me, my friend and the assistant pastor, to come get my house ready for worship you need to bring two cars with you when they come. And so when they came, they went over there. They were like, why do I need two cars? I mean, I must have a lot of stuff. She must be a hoarder or something like that. Well, they get there, and what she wanted them to do was to take all of her idols out of her home and put them together. They were heavy idols that were very expensive. She was a Buddhist for many years. She had just become a Christian. She had spent thousands of dollars on these idols, and she needed help physically carrying them to the cars so that then they could, the three of them, she and the two pastors, they then drove across the street, down the street a little bit, to the sea and actually dumped her idols in the ocean. I love that. I love that story so much. It's such a picture of what happens to us when God gets a hold of us. Physically, this woman had idols in her home. And so she's like, I need to get rid of these. They no longer belong in my life. And for us as Christians, it's the same way. When we have idols in our life and we need help, we need encouragement, you can't just get rid of all your idols by yourself. Call some people to help you. But when you start worshiping the Lord, you're like, man, I need to get right. I need to live before the Lord, the, the Holy One, the set-apart one. I need to dump my idols in the sea. I need to get rid of this stuff in my life. 
So as we come before this Lord and God, you know, chapter 4 and chapter 5 form a unity. Next week we're going to talk about the slain lamb. This week we're talking about the throne. It really is a unity. Because the only way we can approach the throne of God is as we approach him, we come in our brokenness and we have our idols and we come before this holy, holy, holy God. And the only way we can come before him is because there is the slain lamb who is standing next to him. That's what next week is going to be about. Mark John is going to preach for us. The the, the completion of the picture is there is Jesus there, slain, slain for us. The only way we can come in, the only way we can come before the throne and worship is because there is a lamb who has been slain for you. Now that should not make you more willing to hold on to your sin and your idolatry because you've been forgiven. That doesn't make any sense. No, it makes you want to dump your idols even more because you have your God who sent his only son who was slain for you. And so in worship, let's worship him. Let's worship him, this God who is worthy. He's holy, 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 and who loves us and who calls us to himself through his son, Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, you are worthy. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Lord, thank you for inviting us into your presence. Teach us again how to worship you in a way that is worthy of who you are, both with our lips, with where we put our hope and our attention, where we find meaning in this world, and how we live our lives. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.